Uh, Good morning. My name is Bill Campbell. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 uh, from the 2011 NIV translation. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As you know, if you've been coming for a while, we're in a short series about worship and the church. And I want to begin today by asking you to imagine something with me, okay? Imagine that right now you are on trial for your faith. You're on trial for the faith. You know, hundreds of thousands of people have faced that threat of being on trial for their faith. And suppose part of the trial for your faith was a series of questions. And the questions would be something like this. Who is it that you worship? Now, of course, the answer would be God, but that's not what the interrogator wants in this situation. He asks, what kind of being is it that you worship? And you try to explain, and then a third question comes up, and it says, how do you receive your knowledge about this being that you worship? How how do you know this being exists, and how do you know this being's nature? Suppose that was an interrogation that you were going through. Uh, I wonder what our answer would be. I know that when it comes to knowledge concerning God, we can think about theories of knowledge that are rather famous in philosophy and in education, and we can apply them to this question. So broadly speaking, without getting into the weeds, philosophers would say, you get your knowledge in one of two ways. Some would say exclusively in one way and not the other. One would be a theory of rationalism, which means that somehow embedded in your mind are these categories for understanding. You know, like mathematics, it's just, it's there and you, you experience it and then you experience more, but it, it's there. Some people would say, no, that's not really how we learn. We learn through experience. The knowledge doesn't reside just mysteriously in our heads, maybe some form of a category, but we learn by experience. 
And that's how we come to knowledge. Educators have discussions all the time about how kids learn, right? So without, again, getting into the weeds on philosophy or education, I want to suggest something about how we know God. And I want to give you three ways, and only three ways today, that I think it's legitimate to say we know God. The first way we know God is what I will just call the rational way. Or think about it this way. We know God through doctrine. Okay? Statements concerning who God is. When you think of doctrine and you think of, let's say, the New Testament, what author first comes to mind? Go ahead. Shout it out. Paul. Yes. Uniformly true, it happened in the first service too. Nobody said anything but Paul, right? He's known as a doctrinaire. He, he puts together doctrine. He's got lots of propositional sentences, which by the way are run-on sentences and they go on forever and they have no periods for paragraphs at a time. He, you know, I don't know who was his grammar school teacher, but they didn't teach him punctuation. Paul just keeps talking and talking and talking and it's propositional truth about God. It's doctrine, right? He's famous for that. So let's consider not just what Paul says concerning doctrine, that kind of knowledge, the rational kind of knowledge, but let's consider other passages in Scripture as well and break the knowledge of God down into categories. One part of our knowledge of God is or should be that God is absolutely sovereign. Think kingship, think ruler, absolutely sovereign. In Psalm 19, we uh, hear the opening words, the heavens declare the glory of God. Basically, the whole sky is his firmament for expressing himself. But very quickly after that author of Psalm 19 begins by talking about the knowledge of God that comes from the skies and comes from the earth, he moves to something else. He moves to the law of God. The law of God, he said, is perfect in converting, in transforming the soul. Testimony of the Lord is right. The commandments of the Lord are pure and they're simple and they're like honey in my mouth. He says the knowledge of God is both out there and both right here. The law of God. As a matter of fact, when I rationally understand and meditate on this law, I actually become wiser than my teachers on occasion, often wiser than my elders. Why? Because of me? No, because of the law. And in the law, we do understand God to be absolutely sovereign. What we also understand about God through the Scripture is His omnipotence. That is completely powerful, overwhelmingly powerful. In our passage, our reading for today in Ephesians, there's a phrase called immeasurably powerful. Now, in that section, it's applied actually to the resurrection power that's imparted to us as believers. It is beyond measure, Paul says. The power of God is inexhaustible, 
you can think about it and you will never come to the end of it. That's how amazing it is, how powerful it is. On one occasion, Daniel, the book of Daniel, describes this this omnipotent God. And his words are these, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and of the peoples on the earth. No one can hold back his hand. I, I can't quite read that without thinking about people who are right now overwhelmed by oppression. Say, for instance, Christians in the Ukraine who have a force on their doorstep that looks absolutely overpowering. If Daniel were speaking concerning current events, he would say, drop in the bucket. Nothing to it doesn't even compare to the power of God. Trust in the Lord. God is omnipotent. God is also omnipresent. That is to say, God is everywhere at all times and in all places. On one occasion, Jeremiah, trying to describe this, penned these words, can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not feel the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Another place in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching evil and good. And in Psalm 139, which I quoted extensively last week, where can I go from your presence? I cannot escape from it. Wherever I go, high or low, deep, wide, anywhere, you are there. Your presence is everywhere. So the God that we worship according to Scripture is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. The God is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, and he's omniscient, which means all knowledge. He knows all things, past, present, and future. Complete, comprehensive knowledge. On an occasion, Paul was writing the book that we call Romans today. And he was marveling at the plan of God to bring the Gentiles into this thing called the grace of God. And as he marveled about it, he wrote these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, I love that word, I'll say it again, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He even puts the amen in there. In other words, this God is omniscient. His ways are inscrutable. You cannot get to the bottom of his reasoning. You cannot fully figure out his sovereign nature. You cannot fully understand his dictates. You cannot fully understand his direction and what he's doing. His ways are inscrutable, and it's because he is omniscient. His ways are so much higher than ours. 
There's something else about the nature of the God that we worship. He's not only sovereign and omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. What he tells us is that if we are to worship him, if we are to be in relationship with him, that repentance is absolutely essential. And let me put it differently. Repentance is true self-knowledge. When you get to the point of true repentance, you understand yourself in a way you did not before. You understand the nature of your own humanity, your own will. You understand the enslavement of sin that is yours. As Paul says in the epistle to the Ephesians that we read, you were dead in your transgressions and in sin in which you once lived. We were all there, he said, absolutely dead. Paul puts it another way in Romans. Romans chapter 6, he says you were slaves to sin. And now you've been given freedom from sin because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because you're perfect, but because Christ is perfect for you. Repentance is absolutely essential when it comes to worship. The final thing I want to mention is that According to God's word, salvation is completely, absolutely, totally a gift. One of the most famous passages in Ephesians comes shortly after our reading. Paul is again exalting in the grace of God. After he has said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. He says, it's, it's by grace you've been saved. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which... God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is an absolute gift. That too is an extension of what Paul was saying in Rome in Ephesians chapter 1 when he introduced the whole idea of our relationship with God. He said you were predestined, you were destined before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined you. He adopted as his dear children to the praise of his glorious grace. And you know, sometimes when we read a passage like that, we get all twisted up like a pretzel concerning predestination. It's kind of fun. Lots of stuff has been written about it. Actually, it's kind of entertaining at, in our staff because Dan is a committed Calvinist, and I'm not. He was here in the first service, and I said this. I'm a committed Christian, okay? I'm not a committed Calvinist. He'll get back at me, wait a couple of weeks, and something will come through. The point is, we have various theories, right, about predestination. Actually, it is a word in the New Testament. You're going to have to deal with it, like it or not. It's a theme in the Old Testament as well. But you know what, just to be personal, Dan and I both agree about? 
when it comes to predestination. <laughs> we both agree that we were absolutely dead in our transpass- trans- transgressions and sins. And people who are dead cannot infuse life into themselves. They're dead. The source of life has to come from somewhere else. How could I ever get credit for the source of life if I was dead? Here's what we agree on and we ought all to agree on. Is that salvation, grace through faith, is the activity of God from start to finish. From beginning to end. Describe it however you wish, but it's God's grace that redeems. And you've got nothing to do about it, with it, and nothing to brag about. Now, by the way, you were hoping that that was the last point, right? That was the first point. (laughs) We learn because of rational capacity through doctrine. And all those doctrines are in Scripture in various places, not just in Paul. But there's some other two ways I want to mention that we learn about God. The second way is experiential. Let's call that discipleship, shall we? Experiential. I want to remind you of something. I'm sure you already know that when the disciples followed Jesus for three years, they didn't take notes. They didn't have notes. There weren't no paper, right? No pens or pencils. And they certainly didn't have an iPad. What they did was listened. They tried to allow it to go into their mind and be part of them. What they also did was walk with him and eat with him and watch him. The process of learning is not what you might call knowledge-based in a rational sense there. It's experiential. That's how they were getting their knowledge concerning God. They watched God in the person of Jesus Christ heal the sick and touch the eyes of the blind. And you know what they did in the book of Acts? They replicated it. They followed their master. They watched the hand of God in Jesus feed the hungry and they watched him live with the poor. And so they followed and and they did the same. They watched God in the person of Jesus Christ experience sorrow and joy with others. And so they did the same. They watched the Son of God weep at the tomb of Lazarus with perfect sovereign knowledge that he would be raised. And they followed his example. They watched him trust God his Father in the darkest hours of his days, right to the end, where he sweat great drops of blood. And in all honesty, that sometimes rankles us and confuses us, he cried out, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Why did you abandon me? But still, he trusted. They watched that. 
They listened to that. They learned from the experience and they followed. And they too, everyone but John, suffered a martyr's death just like he had done. That was practical experience and practical learning. There's a third way we come to knowledge of God and it's what I'll call relational. Let's use the word love. If you want to know someone, I mean really know someone, you got to love them. You, you know this in relationship with your spouse or your children. You love them so deeply, you know them inside and out. And your love motivates you to know them more. Your love should be inexhaustible so that you can grasp every bit of knowledge concerning who they are. That's the way we know God. To love God. The Gospel of John and his epistles are famous for the theme of love. To begin with, John 3.16, right at the beginning of the Gospel, he opens up with that famous verse, most famous of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but instead have eternal life. John goes on to pen words like that in his epistles. He says, God is love. And because God is love, I give you a command. Love one another. Emulate the love of God. If you want to know God, you must love him. Down near the end of Jesus' ministry, when we read John in chapter 13, we hear these words, having loved his own, the end was about near, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. And of course, famously in his high priestly prayer, he prayed for them. He said, Lord, you gave them to me and I loved them. I pray that you will help them endure in the world, not deliver them from the world. I love them. Help them to love one another. If we are to know God, we must know him through the rational capacity of the mind. That is the revelation of God and what God says concerning himself. Absolutely essential for knowledge of God. We must know God, not only through the rational capacity that is ours, but through the experiential following God, just like the disciples did following Jesus. We must and can understand God through the, rational, the relational capacity of love. If we worship a God that isn't sovereign, We've created a God of our own convenience. And when that God is no longer convenient, we'll abandon him. But God is sovereign and is worthy of worship. If we follow a God and worship a God based on our love for him, 
We've got it backwards. As the epistles of John tell us, God is love. So you ought to love one another. We don't love God because he does good things for us. We love God because God is God. We love God because God has given us the capacity to love. God starts it all and we participate in it. That's what true worship is about. If we worship a God who gives us wealth and spares us suffering, we're going to become disillusioned because God doesn't always spare us suffering or give us wealth. If we worship a God who does not require repentance, we'll have a false view of self that will be destructive to us. And in our minds, eventually, there'll be no real need for deliverance. It's just the choice as to whether or not we love God, whether or not he's convenient for us. If we worship a God who demands that we earn our salvation, we've gone astray. And you know what the end result of worshiping God because he demands us to earn our salvation is? One of two things. You realize it's impossible and you give up and you abandon God. Or you become dishonestly proudful of your own righteousness. You fool yourself into thinking that you are perfect. And you do deserve it. The opposite is true, of course. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So back to the beginning. Who is the God that you worship? Can you tell someone who he is and why you worship him? What kind of God is he? Let's make a commitment, shall we? That in our worship, we worship the one true God. Without overlays from our culture, without definitions that are self-ingratiating, without allowing him to become some kind of Santa Claus to us. Let's worship the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who in spite of all that lives with the poor. Let's worship the holy God, holy, 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 who in spite of his holiness becomes sin for us because we need rescue. Let's worship that God. And if we worship that God, we're on the right track. And God will truly bless us. He'll open up, as Paul says in Ephesians, the eyes of our heart so that we can understand the depths of the riches of the grace of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that you are not easy. You're not easy to understand. We can't comprehend you. You're not easy to follow because you're perfect and we're not. Lord, you're not even easy on us because like a good father, you chasten us sometimes. You actually work us over, so to speak, so that we can be recreated in your image. We thank you, Lord, that over the years, your saints have understood this and often written about it so that we could understand it. We thank you that wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation we realize that part of that foundation is a God who leads us through fiery trials so that he can burn up the dross and perfect the gold. We thank you, Lord, that when we feel abandoned, we know someone who was there, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray you will give us the understanding and the courage to follow you no matter what. And the understanding of who you are that goes counter to our culture. And the understanding of who you are that goes opposite our inclination. Because you're God. And your ways are higher than our ways. And we love you. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.